1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
3: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash
2: podcast.
4: We've gone on this roller coaster ride with Elon Musk, uh, with the Twitter uh, CEO as well, and really just shareholders trying to figure out what exactly is Twitter- going to look like and then we get the earnings I mean massive emphasis on the monetization this time around
5: uh yeah and you gotta wonder whether it really matters if it's just gonna be a private company tomorrow but there's other companies pretty that we'd like to talk to we're gonna get into it now with Laureen Gilbert she is the CEO of Wealthwise. discuss she's gonna discuss how markets are going to react to all of these massive massive earnings You know, as our analysts like to remind us, Twitter is just a small company compared to Apple and Amazon and some of the big numbers we have had. Laureen, thank you so much for joining us. When you look at the risks that these big, big companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, they're just so big when you look at them compared to the rest of the market. So when you're looking at the next set of earnings, what are the biggest risks to you to not just these companies but the broader markets at large?
6: Right, well, this is a big week for earnings with technology in focus and understanding where are these companies heading and get some guidance from these companies. And so, you know, what we're looking at, we wanna hear from Apple, what, are, what do they see with the consumer? Apple has been very good at predicting consumer behavior. Um, predicting how the consumer will be able to spend. And we wanna hear if new products are gonna be focused on more affordable products, or if the consumer they expect will still be strong with some of the products that are more expensive.
4: I'm so glad you mentioned that consumer behavior beacon, because I remember in 2020 when the markets were trading, the entire market would rally or tank on these Apple store closures, which was essentially this idea of uh, kind of Apple companies and these services that they provide for iPhone repairs, that foot traffic essentially being almost a proxy for mobility data, which is interesting to me. And speaking of that mobility data, we're getting uh, not so great mobility data from China and this idea that COVID lockdowns in China will have ripple effects around the world. How worried should investors be about that? Well, that's a great point. That's
6: another thing that we want to hear from companies like Apple. How are the lockdowns impacting them as far as um, product completion, as well as shipping. So all of those things are very important and how is that going to affect these companies going forward? So when we do look at risks, the risks, there are many risks to look at. Um, However, so far in earnings season, companies continue to be profitable. So, you know, looking to see how the companies are able to pass along price increases to consumers and who are those price setters. And I think that's a very important thing for investors to look at when they're deciding which companies to invest in.
5: You know, I'm really curious here about what the limit is. One person we spoke to is the CEO of Chipotle, for example, where prices have increased. They're seeing avocado prices, paper prices, all these prices rising. But he's not quite willing to raise prices more. And so when you look at the next couple of months, how much inflation can consumers really take? And how much are companies going to have to start eating the costs?
6: Well, and that is the big question. And and Chipotle has done a great job of continuing to raise prices and maintain profit margins. But to your point, how far can they go and how far will the consumers allow these companies to go? So I think now is when you start seeing uh, some consumers just saying, in fact, a recent poll that came out said that 84% of Americans were looking to decrease their expenses because of their concerns of inflation, because of the cost of goods rising right and we're also looking for the consumers to be shifting from good spending to services spending and so we do see there. think there's going to be some weakness there on durables as consumers then shift over to services and hopefully do some shifting you know like we're seeing in travel
4: yeah and i, I gotta ask here i mean we've we've seen all of these really just downside moves a lot of stocks just tanking uh, across the board where are the dip buyers where are the what the dip buyers. The dip buyers. Right. You it. would think if it sells off long enough, someone would say, Well, that's that's a steal. Right,
6: right, right, right. Well, we've got some cash on the sidelines for that very purpose and we don't see capitulation yet. So I think the dip buyers are looking for capitulation, which I don't think we've seen yet, so I still see some more downside pressure.
5: I think for any big bank or asset manager, the question is, what's the low? What's the downside? How do you know? And and frankly, that's a question for anyone who's looking to buy a stock. So how how low can it go from here, the S&P, for example?
6: Well, we've already seen a correction, so we're in correction territory. And the big question when you're in a correction is, are you heading into a recession? Because if we are heading into a recession, there could be quite a bit more downside pressure. However, when we look at a lot of the data, including employment numbers, which continue to be very strong, and the demand for employers to hire more people, when we look at that, we still see the economy being strong. When we look at PMI, manufacturing numbers, still very strong. So, you know, I think we will see some capitulation. Hard to know exactly where that bottom is going to be, but we're probably pretty close before we start seeing some more rallies.
4: Well, Laureen Gilbert, founder and CEO of Wealthwise Financial Services, joining us right here in our interactive broker studio, making the trek all the way from Dallas, Texas.
2: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
5: Steeple Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
4: Let's stick with the market perspective because we talked about G10 currencies with John Authors. We got to talk about the EM side of things. There are so many countries out there who... who have a whole other set of issues that the average american probably can't even fathom no better person to break it all down with than damien sassauer chief em fixed income strategist at bloomberg intelligence we just like to call him the master of em over here but we so good so good so good so good and and decided to Coming into the office today, which we extra ap- appreciate. Damien, let's start with these Chinese lockdowns. How seriously should we be taking them?
7: Oh, we need to be taking them seriously. I mean, if you look at the mobility data, which everybody's talking about, Shanghai and Ningbao, port congestion is still egregious. And, you know, basically, if you just look at peak traffic in, in Shanghai, it's running at Forty percent lower than on a year-over-year basis. If you look at the two major airports in Shanghai, I think capacity is running at below ten percent. So certainly the lockdowns are having an impact. But really, the story in China isn't China; it's the Japanese yen and the fact that we have seen this depreciation of the yen and how that's spilling over into the broader Asian bloc. I mean, that is really why you see China yuan now at six sixty-three. Just to put things in perspective, that is a thirty big figure move this month alone. We haven't seen something like that since twenty fifteen. So I think that's got a lot of people's attentions and certainly the Korean won and some others are are, are are depreciating as well. So, you know, it's got a broader impact on Asia and that's spilling over into the broader EM, pop- EM complex.
4: Do we get a seven handle on the yuan? What do you think?
7: I, I think that's definitely possible. I mean, we were there just a few years back, right, during the tra- uh, during, you know, the Trump and the trade war. But I think, you know, for me, it's 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 about the near term and if you look at the offshore, onshore China Yuan basis, we're now running at close to 400 pips. That's like, I don't know, three, three and a half standard deviations above the five-year average. So that just shows the stress. Let's be clear, the onshore Yuan has a, uh, a 2% band on either side, so it's kind of managed by the government. It's not allowed to move as freely as the offshore Yuan. And so this offshore Yuan is starting to really depreciate aggressively, which is uh, you know a sign of capital flight.
5: So this is why they put me and Critty together. It's the one-two punch. She gives you the macro. (laughs) I'll give you the trading strategy. So, you know, the carry trade. Can you explain how this is playing out on Wall Street and really what Critty has kept on outlining here truly is a historic moment for markets.
7: Yeah, there are there are really three primary factors when you're looking at investing in currencies, right? There's there's carry, which you mentioned, there's value and there's trend, but the carry element of it has been very, very volatile. So anybody who's been investing in carry trades, the, the EM currency volatility has made it very, very prohibitive to take advantage of that strategy. And it's still, look, EM currency volatility is still relatively high. I mean, it's not high relative to fixed income or equities, but it's certainly high relative to DMFX, but DMFX is now starting to tick up higher as well, so that may actually make the carry trade look a little bit, uh, a little bit more attractive. And certainly, we have resource-rich, high carry currencies in Latin America, like Brazil, Chile, uh, Colombia, even, which which stand out. I mean, you know, the, as, as being perhaps a good place to park your money and basically uh, watch the paint dry if if the volatility fits.
5: Translation here: the people who have made a lot of money in the first three months of the year are about to make a lot more money <laughs> trading currencies in the next three months of the year. But you know these do have devastating consequences let's let's be clear for Many emerging markets, Damien.
7: Yeah, no, I mean, look, you know, you can't ignore the currency impact. I mean, for, for years and years now, I mean, for the better, better part of the last decade, if you're a fixed income investor, I mean, talking not just emerging market fixed income, but developed market fixed income, you know, you, you really didn't care so much about, about the currency impact, because currency vol was, it was was suppressed, it was low, and you were carrying so well with bonds ri- rallying, now yields are, fall, uh, yields are rising and bond prices are falling, and currency vol is high. So, you know, you need to, I mean, if, if you're a fixed income investor, you got to be an FX investor. You got to look at the currency impact on your returns. And it's it's growing in terms of the uh, active contribution to total returns. So, I mean, yeah, you know, to your point, you really have to have a strategy about how you're looking at currencies. I mean, I've heard a lot of people talking about car- if you're a, a Japanese yen investor, it still makes sense to to carry in U.S. treasuries on a hedged basis and all this crazy stuff. Look, a lot of that's going by the wayside because the cost of funding across borders is going up incrementally as we speak and so I think it makes a lot of those strategies a little bit more challenging and a little bit more difficult to hold on to
4: those interest rate differentials are really messing with I think almost every other every country in the world right now uh, as Michael McKee pointed out the Federal Reserve really can't do anything about it right there this their job is to focus on the American economy what we have to talk about as Shanelli pointed out, the consequences for the EM space, the food consequences, I really want to point out. It's record high food prices, especially when it comes to the bread basket. Egypt is something Tom Keene does not stop talking yeah, about. Yeah. Um, but there's other places as well that are really going to be feeling the pinch of the food spot, uh, the food prices. In addition to perhaps some other fears, IMF uh, managing director Kristalina Gorgeva in, at the IMF spring meetings underscoring the possibility of sovereign debt crises yeah. in mm-hmm. emerging markets what is the likelihood of that
7: so you're hitting on the nerve here where will inflation peak and how far will growth decline effectively monetary tightening is colliding with a It's co- it's colliding with a cost of living crisis specifically in emerging markets so you're right to focus on You know, the Egypt's, the Pakistan's, the Nigeria's who are most at risk. I mean, the U.N. International Food Price Index is something is up something in the order of 73 percent since May of 2020. But let's talk about the countries who are net food exporters, the ones that are supposed to benefit. I think that's what isn't really being talked about as much. So those countries, Brazil, Chile, Thailand, are probably less at risk than some of the others. And I think that's an interesting point that not a lot of people are looking at the net food exporters and how, quite frankly, a lot of their currencies have outperformed amidst the crisis.
4: I have a perhaps fun slash <laughs> not fun question. I know it's a dumb question. I'm going to ask it to you anyway. We have to talk about Russia. We've we've talked about everything else. We got to talk about Russia. It's pretty clear that if Russia ever perhaps rejoins uh, the the previous stage that it was in, it might take years yeah. before it before it does that. Even in the best of circumstances, does that mean the no brainer trade here is to just buy? cds's on russian debt
7: <laughs> no i would not go near that and and look i mean it's not as a no-brainer trade because really the credit default swap market isn't open to retail investors or really to your average investor it's more of an institutional hedgers market but i think you know just if we're focusing on russia we got to look to next week may 4th is a key day uh that's when the grace period ends for the 650 million odd that russia has paid its creditors in rubles which would constitute a, a default in the eyes of the rating agency so this could be again you know the first uh really the first default we've seen on external debt from russia in i mean since the early 1900s but i think what's also interesting is soon thereafter we've got victory day and that's when russia you know prances its military out there they parade they in the streets and a lot of people are thinking that may 9th that they're going to want to deliver something to the russian populace a victory of some sort something in ukraine yeah. that you can hang your hat on i think the one thing um you know about the russia ukraine war that's kind of getting interesting here is you know ukraine's got a lot of external debt outstanding they've got gdp warrants and whatnot yeah and if you're now of the belief that ukraine whether or not they come out of this you know in, in whatever form they come out of this the positive goodwill and the sentiment behind them they're going to have enough in the kitty that these bonds are starting to look very very attractive from a from a From an investor standpoint and so i think that's an interesting point amidst all of it is that you know ukraine there is a place for ukraine debt in people's portfolios it's gotten absolutely clobbered i mean if you look at cds in ukraine i mean it's just as bad as russia but i would if if i were a i guess a betting man i'd probably rather uh put my money in ukraine cds uh well you know looking for spreads to, to, to tighten rather than relative to Russia.
4: Yeah, that's less controversial of a trade too. Yeah, yeah right. You,
7: you can answer to your fiduciaries a whole hell of a lot more easily. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, let's stick with the Russia theme here and talk about the ruble, because there are plenty of headlines and we're bringing this back to our worldwide audience here. Uh, european buyers some of them paying in rubles some, some of them refusing to pay in rubles and getting their gas flows halted poland bulgaria come to mind is this potentially the start of a broader move by russia to block those flows that's the question and how much of it is actually helping the ruble
7: well let's put a date on it may 15th that's when the european gas gas payments come due right and that's when we're going to get real color and clarity on how that's handled specifically by the ce3 the eastern european block like poland Romania uh Czech Republic and Hungary I mean look if you look at the Hungarian foreign that currency's gotten I mean they just had to hike rates again and it's still not doing anything to stem the bleeding on on the foreign so I mean you know if you look at some of these countries now let's just be clear Poland has definitively pivoted away from Russia and you know are obviously providing uh, all sorts of arms to Ukraine and very supportive Hungary not so much and so Hungary can't get out of its own way it seems and it seems like a lot of these countries that are kind of like Serbia, for example, that are kind of siding with Russia are really getting penalized in the capital markets because of it, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. So that's certainly something that, you know, a lot of investors are taking advantage of and that we're monitoring very closely.
4: Davian Sassauer, as brilliant as promised, Chief EM Fixed Income Strategist over at Bloomberg Intelligence. We thank you so much. I literally think... In the span of, I'm just looking at the clock here. Ten minutes. We literally went around the world, right? So around the I world, eighty days around, days go the, world around the, world in the world, ten minutes
5: with you, Critty, <laughs> and it is most fun to do it with Damien, who <laughs> somehow knows everything about every detail of every bond being traded in the
4: world. I so. know it's brilliant. Really, I don't know how. Well, you know, guys, he comes in with this piece of paper, and it's, I've
7: got notes with yellow highlights on them. Highlights. And there's stars, scribbles. Let know.
4: me tell you, one time, Shanali, I caught him in the TV set and he was about to throw this piece of paper in the recycling. Bin. I said, No, I want that, and I still have it actually.
5: Oh the and other day, brilliant. Damien pulled up his screen, shared it with me, and went through all the yeah. different <laughs> Russian bonds. If and only our yes. audience
4: was as lucky as we are to get oh, inside so access to Damien's mind. <laughs> oh, uh, we God. know you are a very busy man, Damien, so we will let you go, release you of us picking your brains, which I'm sure me. will not stop anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I think the strongest move here is going to be in the currency market, extremely strong dollar, a 130 on dollar yen. Who better to break it all down with than Christina Aquino, our team leader, really the head of our coverage for FX and rates based out of London. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. How much lower can the Japanese yen fall? How much weaker can it get?
3: Well, Kriti, I think people now are starting to look at 135 versus the U.S. dollar as the next level to watch. But, you know, we really, looking at a 20-year history of of Japan's uh, history of interventions, which there have been several, I think 145 was the past trigger for yen weakness that convinced Policymakers to jump in and strengthen uh, the currency. So that's definitely going to be a key level to watch as well. But certainly it seems like there's a lot of upward momentum here, probably a lot more yen weakness to come.
4: I mean, we're also seeing weakness in the euro here, right? 105. And once again, it comes down to the same story these interest rate differentials, an inflationary environment, a hawkish Federal Reserve. A lot of people are calling for parity on the euro dollar. How long will it take to get us there? And what happens when you get parity?
3: Well, Kriti, you know, we already have a number of forecasters saying that parity is going to come in a matter of months, so potentially uh, by the summer months here in the Northern Hemisphere. And what that actually means in terms of uh, hitting that level, it's quite a significant level, of course. It's, it's something that um, we haven't seen in years and years over here in, in Europe, and potentially a very, very big implications depending on whether you're an exporting company in Germany or whether you're an energy importing economy uh, elsewhere in the eurozone you know because again the the level of your exchange rate really determines how much pricing power or rather how much purchasing power you have internationally and so if you're an exporter good for you if you are someone who's buying up for instance energy or supplies or anything that kind of um, counts as intermediate goods then your costs are probably going to be a lot higher.
4: Well, Christina, Kino, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head, the head of our FX and rates coverage coming out of the heart of the currency exchanges in London.
2: Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
4: We also have John Authors. I want to pose the same questions we posed to Mike, to John, John Authors of Bloomberg Opinion. Thank you again for joining us. Um, One of the things we have to discuss here to you specifically is the currency weakness, not in the yen, not in these EM currencies, not in the pound, but in the euro. For our listeners who don't know this, John Authors has written several books on the European crisis of the last decade and i'm curious about the parity question we're looking at 104 yeah. on euro dollars is parity realistic
1: yes, yes it looks as though it is at the moment um very startled to be able to say that but the uh, the current trajectory it's quite difficult to see how that gets uh, interrupted it, it it requires the ecb to be you know to, to change its approach in a way that could be very uh, Damaging for its credibility to make quite a strong U-turn if uh, if we're not going to see the uh, the the dollar continue to continue to strengthen.
5: If we do continue to see the dollar to, continue to see the dollar strengthening, what ramifications hmm. does that have globally, especially for emerging markets, which would be very negatively tilted towards the scenario?
1: Yes, um, I do think it's fair to say that emerging markets are less vulnerable to a strong dollar than they have been in the past because they tend, uh, with some exceptions, to be less dependent on dollar denominated debt. Um, that being said, plainly, this is still uh, an alarming situation, particularly if you are not a commodity-backed currency. So, for example, the Korean won has come under under pressure recently. Um, it has fascinating... Um, uh, fascinating impact on China, um, which is now allowing its currency to weaken uh, in a very swift way. But uh, you know, this can't be seen as uh, some kind of an attempt to get ahead of the game, as it as it was twenty years ago when it had an artificially weak currency. Uh, and then the the yen um, is altogether extraordinary if you if you uh, i mean it's a historic happened to the it's yen. truly
4: a historic yeah. moment 131 on dollar yes. yen
1: and that has the important implications for china because obviously china cares about its relative competitiveness compared to compared to the yen and the chinese currency started to turn down once it had reached the the level at which uh, to the yen uh, which it reversed course back in 2015, causing, you know, so a minor crisis.
5: Elaborate on that a little bit. What mm. levers does China have, especially because we're thinking about this in the context also of the China's lock uh, lockdowns in China. Um, how do we think about the ability of the country to control its currency here?
1: Well, it continues to control capital in a much greater way than anyone else. It's It's an odd hybrid currency where it is. Um, subject to market wins, market forces, but it's also subject to the whims of the uh, of the leadership. So there is some there is some possibility there. You can continue, you could continue to see um, the China actually abandon its hopes for tidying up, uh, light word the uh, the real estate sector for, for for moving away from any risk of a. Of a Lehman-style incident in China, you could see them just decide, okay, we're going to, we're going to print money again. We're going to let the credit spigots open again. Very intriguingly, despite everything, China really hasn't done that this time around to anything like the extent it's uh, had with all its previous growth slowdowns over the last 20 years so, so i guess that's one main thing they could do which would make a lot of people very happy is print uh, money
5: what does this all mean in the context of reserves you know when we started mm. the, when the, when russia's war in ukraine had started there was a large conversation about the dollar being the reserve currency of the world and now with the dollar strengthening mm. as it is you know does it still pose questions about the meaning of the dollar for for countries around the world
1: Yes, I, 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 one of the really interesting um, suggestions, you could tell you. I'm also very interested in the Bretton Woods Agreement, which finally ended 50 years ago. With, I think um,
4: it makes but, a re- it makes an a, a appearance <laughs> almost every other sentence. I'm Indian, and so it's yeah. pretty. So we
5: understand the meaning of gold <laughs> ah, go. very well. Yeah,
1: so, so you do have um, the, the the monetary global politics behind Russia saying they're going to uh, back the ruble with gold as an attempt to make them establish themselves as some kind of a, a plausible um a plausible uh, second al- alternative currency uh, and asking for payment in rubles because this was actually a, a, a move made way back when Nixon had pulled out of Bretton Woods they, they were no longer The dollar was no longer backed by gold, but they extracted an agreement from OPEC that oil uh, transactions would be denominated in dollars, which meant that you did have some kind of an oil standard to replace the the gold standard. Um, If you try to bring that under challenge, that's a big deal. So, yes, the, the risk here, and China is the pivot on this, um, Russia is obviously committed to to its confrontational course. China has to decide if it's prepared to throw in its lot uh, into more of an Eastern Asian bloc, uh, and rather than continue to steadily uh, tentatively become more a part of the uh, the Western bloc.
4: John, this is a conversation that's not just hitting the BOJ or the, the PBOC, for that matter. This is a truly mm. global conversation in terms of G10 currencies. Sweden, for example, the Central Bank of Sweden, yeah. the Reichsbank, hiking their rates today. A really big U-turn when it comes to monetary global policy. Uh, I think no one said it better than uh, one of our guests on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, Wynn Thin. He was a currency strategist oh, yeah. on Brown yeah. Brothers Harriman. Yeah. He said- Brothers, yeah. Yeah, he said the Riksbank Bank delivered a rate hike, and when they're more hawkish than you, that's saying something. So I think when it comes to a lot of these uh, kind of more dovish governments or, or central banks, the BOJ, uh, the PBOC, is there anything that they can really do, currency intervention aside, to kind of stop this falling knife?
1: I, I'm supposed to be able to have a good answer to that aren't i i it's in in the case in the case of most of them it's that they can they can uh, they can tighten in the case of Japan where you still have um, much lower inflation I guess it is plausible for them to continue on their their current course in the case of uh, the ECB, it's very much more painful because obviously they really do have an inflation problem. Yeah. But in the, yeah, the inheritance from the debt crisis, you know, it's almost a decade since uh, Draghi said um, whatever it takes. So it's 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 a long way back, but you can still see its effect. The uh, the peripheral European countries still have very high unemployment by uh, by the standards of uh, of uh, the West. Um, it's what they what they can do is is tighten, uh, and that by strengthening the euro would reduce uh, inflation that way as well. But they really don't want to because their economy is in a more parlous state than than the states. I, I, I suspect that the ECB has no choice but to uh, to tighten. But I wouldn't. Uh, more aggressively than they're currently suggesting. I think that's the way uh, Christine Lagarde seemed to be going last week, and everything that's happened since would intensify the pressure for her to do so. But there are no good solutions for the ECB at this point.
4: I mean, I have to ask when it comes to – I mean, let's tie all of these things together, right? We have currency weakness Mm. on the one hand. You have recession odds really hitting, I think, Europe the hardest of all three regions. Yes. I mean – Just recently, when you look at the market narrative, questions about a growth, not slowdown, but like a complete stop to growth has really taken over these markets. This idea that if you have COVID lockdowns continue in China, Americans, Mm. for example, will not get the physical goods at the same time that American purchasing power is actually increasing. So, I mean, there's a, a lot going on here, John. And, and I mean, I, I wish we could have an, an hour or so with you uh, because, I mean, a, a podcast even would be handy. But, we but can this do is- that
1: off the air maybe. Okay, yeah, carry on.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean it. This, this really is fascinating. I mean, we're going to stick with you, uh, or we're actually going to bring you back for it. Nope, we're going to stick with you. Uh, a lot going on here, a lot of balls to be juggling. For our listeners, we are waiting a press conference from President Biden to discuss his latest American assistance for Ukraine. So stick with us as we kind of balance everything going on in the market with everything going on uh, with the geopolitics as well. But John, quickly, if I can pose to mm-hmm. you, how do you square this? Are these growth fears in the market really worth considering?
1: Uh, I, I would have said no with greater confidence before the GDP number came out this morning, which uh, did genuinely surprise me. Um, a lot of this is about timing. Um, there's going to be another recession at some point. All of economic history tells you that periodically economies... Slowdown. Um, the question is h- how quickly it comes, and whether the market has got ahead of itself in, in thinking that um, the uh, economic logic is going to play out so that we actually have a, a recession this year, which I don't think is is very likely. The amount of the amount of consumer strength, particularly here in the in the US, makes it hard to uh, to make that assertion. Uh, that said, it does look as though um, the economy is already feeling some of the effects you were just talking about. That uh, that inflation is beginning to destroy demand. That that there have been the issues caused that that, that the uh, renewed supply chain problems have have, have had an effect. Um, the one big possibility that, uh, trying to be positive, I'd like to suggest this is. This is something Darien Perkins at T.S. Lombard put out, which which was that uh, if the economy flows a little quicker and a little earlier, it becomes more possible to get out of this without engineering a really serious recession. You could become more like a mid-cycle slowdown or a very shallow recession, a la um, 1990 You know...
7: Um,
5: I'm wondering yeah. about the recessionary impacts that we might see here. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that this might have really serious ramifications for inequality moving forward. Have you thought about what this could yeah. mean in terms of, you know, coming at a pandemic where already the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and they're facing inflation where you can't pay for food? So what would a recession then do to that backdrop?
1: It's uh, I. I we're now getting into areas it's really painful even to even to countenance one thing that has been positive about the last 12 months is that inequality has actually dampened somewhat um because there's been greater earning power greater negotiating power for people in on low wages so that there has been some sign of reducing inequality that is uh ultimately what is really poisoning society at the moment i think it's why we're why ultimately it's why uh the debate is as polarized and as unpleasant as it is um if you look at where the recession is moving at this point or sorry where the economy is moving at this point um It's possible that you get a move in an egalitarian direction because asset prices take the hit, um, rather than uh, therefore therefore that uh, the rich feel it more than the poor. Um, But 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 there's no denying your 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 opening opening point. We've just been through COVID. Uh, If we're going to if people's patience is going to be tried by another recession this quickly uh, with inflation this time that's that's a very concerning look that's that's not easy for any society to deal with
4: john authors of bloomberg opinion everybody i mean a real treat to have he can talk about anything we can throw anything at him
2: thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer